Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. A warmer from below, welcome to Bumpy Las Vegas for Gus Gus Hoops with myself, Greg Hoops and now part of the Beats and Family Podcast and got a great podcast for you. He's in the second segment. We're going to be joined by Eli Becker of He Checks ABB. He's the founder of That Great Network and he also does great work with Athletic Director U and All Access Network in the second segment. We're going to be recapping what we wound up seeing early on. We're going to talk about how there wasn't a lot of chaos because we wound up doing it after the first half of games after like the Gonzaga and Georgia State game and company. This was before we wound up seeing the 15 seed in St. Peter's being able to get the job done. So trust me, that was a little bit pre-recorded and we did wind up seeing some chaos. But with that said, we're going to recap the early part of the Thursday slate and then going to be turning it forward to Friday, taking a look at these NCAA tournament games that we've got for today. And then in the final segment, going to give you guys picks and analysis on all 16 NCAA tournament games for today as we had some bank shots. First things first, always do love to be able to answer Twitter questions on this podcast. Podcast, and you've got one of two ways to be able to fire those in. First one is my Twitter timeline at GUNIT underscore 81. Keep in mind, letters ZM. Amy does not matter. So, as per usual, please just send these into the timeline. And the other way is find an Apple Podcast review. If you rate this podcast five stars, it is very much appreciated. And then from there, you're able to find whatever you'd like to hear on this podcast via that five star review. Pretty much everything that I got were questions surrounding everything that we wound up seeing in the NCAA tournament yesterday. So let's dive into everything that we did wind up seeing. Try to find some trends. Try to get to know these teams a little bit better and see what went right and what went wrong. A games from yesterday is Greg buzzing about. Here is the rowdy recap. Have to start with Kentucky going down to St. Peter's in overtime as Kentucky winds up just absolutely not being able to get the job done in this spot. 85 to 79 in overtime. It's a situation which St. Peter's was down by six points with about four minutes remaining. They're able to claw their way back, make it to overtime. Oscar Sheboy did his part. 30 points, 16 rebounds, two blocks, two steals. Wound up going 8 of 12 at the free throw line, 11 of 16 from the floor. Problem is, Players not named Oscar Shibway at the free throw line. They had a little bit of a tough time with it. They wound up going there 23 times, and he wound up hitting 15 of them. Meanwhile, St. Peter's 18 of 21 at the free throw line, 
9 of 7 from 3-point range. Daryl Banks the third, 27 points, 5 of 8 from distance. The bench of St. Peter's went 4 of 6 from 3-point range with Doug Eggert giving the team 20 points. Absolutely insane. And for Kentucky, they want to turn the ball over 13 times in this contest. High tie Washington, only 5 points now. One of those was a clutch 3 that very nearly was able to help this team be able to get to double overtime, but... Kellen Grady, 1 of 9 from the floor. And a guy that was a fifth-year gentleman. Big reason why Kentucky was good this season is because they had experience. Wound up failing them in this spot. Historic upset. And now St. Peter's is going to look to try to make it to the round of 16. As as I'm doing this, by the way, we've got Murray State and San Francisco in overtime. So that'll be coming in a few minutes as I recap these games as that one's going final. But how about Longwood versus Tennessee? Tennessee looked very impressive. Perhaps the most impressive performance of the day. 88-56. to They take down the Lancers as they go... 14 of 24 from three-point range. Rick Barnes had covered like one out of his last like 10 NCAA tournament games. And this became number two. Santiago Viscovi, 6 of 8 from three-point range. Kennedy Chandler, Josiah Jordan-James. They combined to be able to go 6 of 10 from three-point range. They combined for 20 points. So Tennessee, all in all, was just able to put this thing on lockdown. They win the rebound battle 32 to 24. Longwood, 16 turnovers in this contest. And for Longwood, they wound up going 38.5% from the floor. They really couldn't get anything going whatsoever. So, Tennessee, they were able to get it done. Arkansas, a win but no cover. You wound up having a little bit of a slip there that wound up costing you the cover and wound up being one of just five turnovers that Arkansas wound up having. 75-71 to 71 was the final in this one, and to the credit of Vermont, they wound up having Ben Chungu hit a three late that wound up being able to give them the cover on a spread of between four and a half and five as he wound up pumping in their 20 points. You had Ryan Davis give the team 20 as well for Arkansas. So, out of the free line, 20 of 25 and if Vermont shot better than 10 of 17 at the free line. They might have been able to force overtime, perhaps be able to win the game outright, but Arkansas, very solid with that regard. Arkansas wins the rebound battle 39 to 32. All in all, relatively decent performance, in my opinion, for Arkansas. Just wound up having a Vermont team that's very efficient, do a solid job of being able to get their style in this game. Arkansas typically good at being able to force turnovers, just six for Vermont. So give them credit for taking care of the ball, but Arkansas, they do wind up surviving and advancing. Speaking of surviving and advancing, that'd be Michigan. They were down 15 early against Colorado State, and it was a bad day for Mountain West teams. We're going to get into that in a second, but 75-63. to Michigan winds up being able to get the job done after they were down by a count of 28-13 to with about five minutes remaining in the first half. And then from there, Michigan offense was able to take hold. They wind up shooting 54% from the floor. Colorado State, they were able to get up actually 17 more field goal attempts than Michigan. They wind up really falling in love with the three. They went 12-35 of all there and it was really a little bit of a lesser guy in Deshaun Thomas that was able to provide a lot of the offense for Colorado State. He wound up having 15 points and you wondered how the Devontae Jones injury would affect Michigan. They put the ball in the hands of Eli Brooks a lot more and he delivered. 16 points, 6 assists, 7 rebounds. Did a very solid job of being able to help flow the offense. You wound up having Michigan be able to do a solid job on the glass. They wind up winning the rebound battle by kind of 36-25. to Musa Diabate, 9 rebounds and Hunter Dickinson, 21 points, 6 boards. He made every one of the free throws he attempted as well. Now Michigan, 15 turnovers. That is a little bit of an issue. A lot of that is because you wind up having Jones out of the fold, but for Colorado State, 
had their opportunities, just could not wind up hitting shots. All the credit to Michigan. They wind up surviving and advancing. Providence, they were a trendy pick to go out in the first round, but they take down South Dakota State by kind of 66 of 57. Providence, to their credit, they really did wind up controlling much of this game. They got up by 14 points in the early part of the second half. South Dakota State would make a bonsai charge. They were down three with about a minute left to go, but... Providence able to hit their free throws late to be able to get it done. Providence winds up going 10 to 12 at the free throw line. And South Dakota State, a team that this year was shooting right around 44.5% from three, 7 of 23 from distance in this one. To the credit of Providence as well, they won the rebound battle by a count of 41 to 32 with Nora Horkler giving you 13 points, 9 rebounds. Al Durham, very efficient in this game. 13 points, 6 assists, 8 rebounds. Providence, they didn't need any late game heroics in this one. They were able to get it done. They really could controlled the game. Very promising sign from the Friars. Memphis, they controlled the game throughout against Boise State. Boise State was able to get tight in this game, but with that said, Memphis, a solid showing. 64-53 the final. They actually wound up getting up by 19 points towards the end of the first half in this one. You did wind up seeing the return of Amani Bates for Memphis, but wound up playing three minutes. He did wind up making a three, so he actually did make those three minutes count, but with that said, for Memphis, what was able to get it done for them is the fact that they were able to do a solid job of forcing Boise State into bad shots. Boise State shoots 31.5% from the floor. Memphis, they win the rebound battle by count 39 to 31. Maladen Armas was able to give the team 11 rebounds, but Jalen Duran, 10 points, 11 rebounds, double double out of him. Landers Nolly was able to give you 12 points. He chips in their five boards, and for Memphis, they were able to have DeAndre Williams do a solid job as well. He was able to chip in there 14 points, so Memphis, they are able to survive and advance. Norfolk State, they were no match for Baylor. 85-49. to Baylor won the top defensive teams in all of college basketball, showed their might in. We were wondering what the Baylor offense would look like. 11-27 of 27 from three-point range. Matthew Meyer, who's been up and down all season. Mullet Man was able to give you 22 points. Gotta love the flow that he was showing in this game. Jeremy Shane was able to chip in their 15.7 rebounds. A little bit of a question mark as well with Baylor's. How they'd be able to perform down low because they are without their top rebounder, Jonathan Chalmachachua. Norfolk State was able to get their offensive rebounds. They had 15 of them in this contest. But overall, Baylor wins the rebound battle by a count 38-29. James Akinjo, 3 turnovers, 10 points, 10 assists. Good showing from him and for Norfolk State. 5-22 from three-point range and shot 32% from the floor. So, absolute domination there. The 12-5 upset that you wound up seeing, you actually wound up seeing two of them. First one was Richmond over Iowa. Richmond gets the job done 67-63. Really just a bad shooting day here from Iowa. 6-29 of from three-point range. Meanwhile, Richmond, they didn't necessarily shoot it great themselves. 5-17 from three-point range. But what allowed them to be able to get the job done in this one was the fact that Iowa... They had a little bit of a tough time matching up with Jacob Gilliard, the all-time leader in terms of steals. Did not wind up having any, but he was able to do a solid job of being able to put some pressure on the Iowa guards, force them into bad shots, and it was Tyler Burton who had 18 points, 11 rebounds, 3 steals, and Gilliard, 24 points, 6 assists, 6 rebounds. Very critical for a Richmond team that has a whole bunch of seniors and 5th-year guys. They survive, they advance, and get the job done. Gonzaga was in a two-point game with Georgia State with about 11 minutes to go, and then they went on just an absolutely furious run. We're going to be talking about this a little bit later with Eli Becker. 93-72, Gonzaga gets the job done, and if it wasn't for a last-second foul, Gonzaga would have covered this game, but Gonzaga was finding themselves in a very tight one throughout this one in the first little bit of it. You wound up having Georgia State be down 59-57 to with about 11 minutes late remaining, and then from there, you wound up having Gonzaga 
go on just an absolutely massive run. I believe it was a 23 to 1 run for Georgia State. They wound up going 6 of 16 from three point range, but on two point shots, they didn't necessarily do a great job. They wound up hitting 16 two pointers on 54 attempts, so they weren't able to be very effective there. They did wind up covering this game, though, because Gonzaga went 16 of 30 at the free throw line. Drew Jimmy, Chet Holmgren, they absolutely dominated down low. A combined 51 points, 30 rebounds, and 7 blocks out of Mr. Chet Holmgren. So that was very impressive. You did have Andrew Nemart wind up committing 3 turnovers in this game. It was a Gonzaga team, though, that overall mainly wound up having 7 turnovers in this game for Georgia State. Just a little bit of an issue of you just couldn't wind up matching up down low. It combined 25 fouls out of the gentleman over there at Georgia State. So they wind up falling in that one. I mentioned the 12 over 5 upset. The other one, that'd be New Mexico State taking down UConn by kind of 70 to 63. A New Mexico State team that came into this one shooting 32.6% from three point range. 14 of 17 in this contest, and Teddy Allen, in terms of individual performances, he had the best one of the day. How about him? Going 13 of 13 at the free throw line, 4 of 7 from 3, 37 points, 6 rebounds. Nobody else on New Mexico State wanted being able to break double figures, but he did it all by himself. For UConn, they go 7 to 23 from 3-point range. The foul fading away from the logo is not necessarily the world's greatest look for UConn either, and UConn, they did a good job taking care of the ball. 8 turnovers in this one, but New Mexico State, a team that typically gets loose with it with right around 14 turnovers per contest just 11 so UConn not able to do necessarily a great job with their on-ball pressure and what I thought was going to be able to get it done for UConn was battle on glass New Mexico State actually won that battle 26 to 25 so a New Mexico State team has been able to hang their hat on defense and really having Teddy Allen go to work on offense well he was able to do so in this one UCLA had a very tough time with Akron but Akron, very solid cover, not able to quite get it done late as UCLA is able to rally from behind 57-53 to the final in this one as you want to find Akron up 47-39 to with about 7 plus minutes remaining. From there, UCLA was able to trust in Tiger Campbell and Tiger Campbell was able to deliver 16 points, 5 assists in this one. Jaime Alquez, very versatile as well, 15 points, 9 rebounds, 6 assists, 2 steals as UCLA, once again, very efficient with the ball, only 8 turnovers they only force Akron into 10 themselves and Enrique Freeman, solid job down low 14 points, 10 rebounds, as Akron wound up playing even up on the glass for UCLA though, 11 of 13 at the free throw line Akron could only get 8 free throw attempts, they did wind up making 7 of them, but Akron also shut down from 3 point range 4 of 17 from distance certainly an Akron team that was able to do a solid job of defense, giving up 70 points or fewer in every one of their games from February on out, so gotta give it up to Akron, very solid performance in this one, but UCLA able to to survive. They're able to advance. By the way, very surprising. Miles Johnson, only nine minutes in this game for UCLA. was dealing with foul trouble, so he was relatively ineffective there. What was relatively effective was Murray State in overtime. The DK Nation pick wound up finally hitting as Murray State was able to get the job done by a count of 92-87. to for San Francisco, 9 of 35 from three-point range. He just couldn't get Khalil Shabazz going. He winds going 1 of 10 from the floor, just three points. Jamari Boye, by the way, a very impressive performance. 36 points. He goes 4 of 12 from three on 26 shots. So he took it upon himself to try to help out the team because... Yuan Mazlowski was out of the fold for San Francisco, and for San Francisco, not a bad job on the glass. They do wind up losing the rebound battle by a count of 43 to 35, but they were able to hang in there. Meanwhile, Tevin Brown and KJ Williams, they were able to combine for 35 points. Brown was able to chip in their eight boards, so they were able to do their part, and for San Francisco, they did a solid job of being able to hold on to the ball. Nine turnovers in this game compared to the 12th of Murray State. Murray State, some bad possessions late in the game, and if you do have trepidation with Murray State, 24 of 35 at the free throw 
line. They're going to be drawing St. Peter's in the next round. A team that wound up really melting down late. How about San Diego State? 72-69. to They wind up losing in overtime. It looked like it was all San Diego State in this one. They were up by 9 points with right around 3 plus minutes remaining. And then from there, they made like your buddy at the bar and they could not close. This was just an absolutely brutal meltdown from San Diego State. As they wind up going 10-17 of 17 at the free line. Creighton 20-24 of 24 at the charity stripe. That did wind up being the difference in this one. Creighton winds up winning this game despite 20. Count them, 20. Turnovers they've been without Ryan Nemard. It has been very tough for them to be able to get their offense flowing. And for Matt Bradley, he did wind up leading San Diego State in scoring with 16 points. But late game decision making was not great. And he wound up doing so on 19 shots as well. So San Diego State, they wind up getting sent packing. Despite the fact that they were able to do a solid job of getting all those turnovers. But also lost the rebound battle 41-32. to So San Diego State, not to say the world's greatest go of it there. And... If you're looking at West Coast teams, one that was able to come through, that would be St. Mary's. They wind up being able to take down Indiana 82-53. to It was very clear that Indiana was gassed in the second half of this game. Just 2 of 10 from 3-point range for Indiana. You wind up having St. Mary's really go off with their offense. They go 10-21 from 3-point range. They wind up winning the rebound battle by kind of 39-28 to as Logan Johnson, 20 points, Three steals in this contest. He also wound up having 19 points out of Tommy Cousy, who wound up going three of six from three-point range. And Trace Jackson Davis, you needed more out of him. 12 points, five rebounds, two assists. Did not wind up really turning the ball over too much. Didn't really get into foul trouble, but just a relatively pedestrian day out of him. And nobody else could generate anything for Indiana. If you're taking a look at how things wound up going yesterday in college basketball, by the way, if you're wondering, you wound up having the college basketball classic game between Eastern Washington and Fresno State. Eastern Washington with late free throws was able to cover that one. They closed right around a 13-point underdog, and this one wound up being a calamity. If you know how slow Fresno State is playing, this is going to be an absolute shock to the system. 83-74, to 74, the final in that one, so you had that going on, but just taking a look at the NCAA tournament games, because that's one in which the underdog wound up pitting along the over, but overs went 10-6 and six in the NCAA tournament yesterday, and you wound up having favorites go 12-4 and four straight up, so a relatively chalky day. You wound up having Creighton be one of those teams. They were a nine seed, obviously. St. Peter's was a big shocker, and then you had your two 12 seeds that wound up coming through, but 9-7 and seven against the spread is what favorites wound up going. So that's what we all wound up seeing in college basketball on Thursday. Now let's turn it forward to Friday and have a little bit of reaction from what we wound up seeing from the early slate on Thursday with Eli Pecker of Each CBB. We're going to be joined by him next right here on Coast Coast Hoops with myself, Greg Eves and now part of the VEASAN Family Podcast. And now a part of the Easton Family Podcast, and it is great to be joined by our guest as this man all throughout the entirety of the calendar, not just during college basketball season, but every month of the year. He is following everything college basketball over there at Heat Check CBB. Guy lives, breathes, eats it. He is absolutely tremendous when it comes to just being able to gauge everything. Also does some work over there with Athletic Director University, All Access Network, as well as we've got Eli Becker joining me on the podcast, founder of HeatCheckCBBN. You will follow him on Twitter at Becker underscore Eli. Last name is spelled B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R. And Eli, it is great to have you aboard. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Greg. This got to be the best day of the year, or one of the two best days of the year, so it's, it's fun to hop on and chat with you. It certainly is. And we're doing this as we're about halfway through the slate of games that we wound up seeing on Thursday. And 
Right now, the big upset that we wound up seeing was Richmond over Iowa. And I mean, we just really haven't seen anything rambunctious to this point. Memphis being a black up Boise State seed-wise, that was an upset. But out here in Las Vegas, Memphis was a favorite. Michigan was a favorite out here in Las Vegas. Seed-wise, once again, an upset. But Colorado State just, after getting up by 15, they were unable to close that game out. What have been your early takeaways from some of these early games? Because I thought that we were going to see a little bit more chaos of what we've seen thus far. I thought there might be a little bit more carnage than I was expecting heading into it. I thought South Dakota State was going to upset Providence. And Providence, for the most part, controlled this game. Jack Rabbits hit some shots to get back into it late. But overall, I thought Providence looked pretty steady. And now they're facing a 12 seed in Richmond in the second round. So things broke pretty well for the Friars, I, I'd say. Uh, it's not to say that Richmond's a pushover because they've obviously been playing great basketball. But I think this sets up Providence to be in a pretty good situation to potentially have a sweet 16 date, most likely against Kansas. So there's some intrigue there. Overall, it hasn't been too shocking with what we've seen. I thought Memphis looked pretty good before they kind of let Boise State creep back into it. Michigan is a team, even without Devontae Jones, I thought they looked solid. Some of the contributions that they got, namely Eli Brooks, was really important for their victory. And Tennessee just absolutely rolled against a Longwood team that I, I enjoyed watching this season. I didn't know if they belonged on the four-team line, so to speak. But Tennessee is a team that unlike Iowa, has been able to keep the momentum going into March. So I've got my eyes on the volunteers and seeing what they can do against Michigan. I think that's a very underrated matchup for the second round. Yep, I do agree with you. I think that those are both going to be very intriguing. And I'm very fascinated to see what we wind up getting out of Gonzaga in the second round because Gonzaga in the first, we're going to call it 29 minutes of the game, they were really in a dogfight against Georgia State with about 11 minutes left to go. That was a two-point contest. And then Gonzaga winds up just going on this absolute burner run. I think that it was something in the neighborhood of 23 to 0 or 23 to 1. So they were really able to roll in that. And I think that this is a Gonzaga team that they are the best team in the field, but they are a team that they're just not quite as head and shoulders above everyone else as they were last season. And I do think that this Memphis team is going to be able to give them a relatively solid fight. Well, I think the way that the bracket shaped up for Gonzaga wasn't the most beneficiary of the number one seeds. I thought personally that Kansas had the easiest draw. I guess we'll see in hindsight what truly comes to fruition. But I thought Gonzaga had some early tests, namely Georgia State, which a lot of people thought could have belonged on the 14 seed line as a team that had battled with COVID and injuries and had been playing a lot better down the stretch. And they're a very physical team. They have a lot of athleticism. And I thought that was the primary reason why Georgia State was able to give Gonzaga a pretty solid 25 minutes. I think playing at the level of physicality turned into a bit of recklessness that got Georgia State into foul trouble. And that's kind of why things ballooned at the end. But then you turn the page to Memphis. I think it's a team that is also very physical and athletic. One of the probably top five, top 10 teams nationally in those two facets. And I think unlike Georgia State, Memphis is going to have a lot more longevity. I think they're going to be able to give Gonzaga a good 35 minutes, maybe even the whole game. Not to say that I have an upset in order because I still think Gonzaga is the best team in this bracket. But the push that we saw from Georgia State, I think we can see even more of a push from Memphis in the second round. So I'm fascinated by those matchups. Jalen Duran against some of these front court guys, Drew Timmy and Chet Holmgren. That's, that's a really fascinating situation. 
and even the improved guard play that we've seen out of Memphis over the course of the season. Alex Lomax has gotten a lot better. He had some good contributions. I don't know if I'm pulling the upset here, but I'm intrigued by the Tigers and how they line up with Gonzaga. That should be a really, really good one. I agree with you. I do think that Memphis is going to be able to give Gonzaga a relatively tough, tough test. And if we do wind up seeing Gonzaga in the Sweet 16 Elite Eight, those are not going to be easy matchups. I agree with you on Gonzaga having the toughest road to the Final Four. Eyes. We do have Eli Becker joining me on the podcast. Does a terrific job. Over there, he checks CBB, and as we know, there's going to be a couple other one seeds that they begin their march to try to be able to get to the Final Four, as well as Arizona is going to be taking on Wright State. That is going to be on Friday, and obviously, well, if Arizona winds up losing that game, then things have went a little bit less than savory for them. But with that said, when it comes to what we're going to be seeing on Friday, I think that it is going to be very fascinating to see what we wind up getting with some of those late games because you've got UAB Houston, Davidson, Michigan State, and TCU versus Seton Hall. I think that you've got yourself a pair of games in which you could wind up seeing a lower seat. At the very least, be competitive. I wind up advancing Houston in my bracket, but I think that UAB is going to be pesky. I advance Davidson in my bracket, and then the A9 matchup versus TCU and Seton Hall, I think is one of the best ones that you're going to get at one of the most evenly matched games of the entire tournament. So I really take a look at this late slate on Friday, and I think that we're going to be treated to some good action. Yeah, I really like the ones that you mentioned. I think the South region in particular has a number of teams that have high major type players who are playing at the mid-major type level. I think UAB with Jelly Walker, Silvio D'Souza with Chattanooga. Those are two really intriguing 12 and 13 seeds that are capable of pulling off upsets. I don't necessarily have them in my bracket, but it would not surprise me at all if I saw one of those teams advance. But another matchup that I really like if we're talking about the Lake window is Colgate against Wisconsin. I think this is a fascinating one because Colgate has been there before under Matt Langle, and they've had two really close calls. They led Arkansas by double digits in last year's tournament before kind of folding late. And in 2019, they give Tennessee a really, really good game. This is the third time now that Matt Langle's back in the tournament, and he's got another team that can just shoot the lights out. Kind of similar to a South Dakota State, maybe not as up-tempo and flashy, but just as efficient and you know, one of the top two, top three, three-point shooting teams in the entire nation. They spread the ball really well. And Wisconsin, I'm still in wait-and-see mode to see what this team looks like with Johnny Davis. His health has been a concern, and he had a really tough performance in his most recent game shot, three of 19 from the field, the three turnovers against Michigan State in the Big Ten tournament. So Wisconsin's going to need a lot more contributions from the supporting cast to get a win here. I don't think this is going to be a pushover game, even though it is in Wisconsin's backyard in Milwaukee. But I think Colgate's going to make things interesting. And Davidson as well. I really like this Davidson team. Hunjun Lee's a guy who we've had on our radar, radar for a long time, not only as a, a great college player, but also a pro prospect. And some of these supporting cast guys like Luka Brykovich and also Foster Lawyer, the Michigan State transfer, going against his former team. There's there's a lot of subheadings in that matchup, you know, before even mentioning Tom Izzo and what he can do with this team in March. So some really, really fun late window slate games over on Friday night. I do think so as well. I think that the Friday slate is going to be really rambunctious. And one upset that I'm taking a look at as we do have Eli Becker of Heat CBB joining me on the podcast that would be Illinois against Chattanooga. I want to take the points with regards to a betting standpoint with Chattanooga, not necessarily the money line, but when it came to my bracket, I wound up having three 13 seats advancing. One of those was South Dakota State. Unfortunately, they couldn't get the job done, but the other one was Chattanooga because 
I just take a look at Illinois. Whenever they've had Andre Curbelo out there on the floor, it has not been very good for them, to say the least. They've been dealing with a little bit of an injury to Jacob Granderson. And Chattanooga is just a really flat-out good team. Malachi Smith, not just one of the best major players in all of college basketball, but one of the best players in college basketball. I know that you mentioned Silvio de Sousa and what he's able to do for Chattanooga. So I take a look at this game, and I have this start as – Really the biggest upset that we could find. I know that there's a lot of people that like Colgate over Wisconsin. I think that it's just going to be a little bit tough for Colgate to be able to get the job done within the state of Wisconsin. So I can't necessarily get there on that one. But the one upset that I really look at that I love is this Chattanooga versus Illinois game. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I I like Chattanooga. I like what they've done throughout the season over in the SoCon, which I think is a traditionally underappreciated conference. Like you said, even though Silvio D'Souza is kind of the high major guy who formerly played at Kansas and now transferred down, I think the fact that he's going to be able to maybe not match Kofi Coburn's size down low, but he's, I mean, he's 250 pounds, six foot nine. He's not going to be pushed around like a lot of other 13, 14 type seed teams are going to be pushed around. So that's something to monitor. I think what I want to see out of Chattanooga, if they're going to force the upset, is they need to chase Illinois off the perimeter. They can't allow Trent Frazier or Jacob Brent Granderson or Alfonso Plummer. There's so many three-point threats on this Illinois team. If they're not flying around the perimeter, I think they could they could get down pretty quickly. So I want to see Chattanooga stay feisty on the perimeter and even forcing some turnovers will be good, particularly if it's Andre Curbelo because this team can be pretty scattered when Curbelo's turning the ball over and not getting it to some of the perimeter threats or interior threats in Kofi Coburn. So I think the playbook is there for Chattanooga to pull off the upset. Obviously, putting that into motion is a big question mark there. But Chattanooga is an interesting upset pick. And I think going back to some of the early talking points, like I mentioned with Colgate or with Davidson, even UAB, a lot of these teams, it just it can't be one guy. It has to be a collective effort. I think with UAB, Jelly Walker, with him being an absolute stud, and he's one of the top 20 usage guys in all of college basketball, he's going to have to have contributions from some of these other players because I love what Jordan Walker has done this season, but against the defensive team as stout as Houston, it's going to have to be guys like Quan Jackson, Quan Jackson or KJ Buffin if it's going to pull off an upset. So I look for a lot of these teams that have a solid number two, solid number three option. And if those boxes are checked, I think uh, there's a pretty legitimate upset candidate. I do agree with you there. I do think that it's going to be really fascinating to see what we wind up getting out of really both of those games as we do have Eli Becker of ECHCBB joining me on the podcast. And Eli, I think that a game that a lot of people are going to have their eyes on, that'd be the mid-major versus a high-major, Ohio State and Loyola Chicago. A lot of people have fallen in love with Loyola Chicago, though. I really didn't like what I saw from them in conference. Loved what I saw from them in the conference tournament. So it's sort of been an up and down team this calendar year because they were able to burst onto the scene. They had a couple of nice non-conference wins. They also wound up going to Salt Lake City, got the job done against San Francisco. But I do fear that Ohio State having EJ Liddell down low, it's going to be too much for Loyal Chicago because Loyal Chicago does a great job with their three-point shooting, but they're not really a good rebounding team. I'm not sure where you wind up pegging this one because out here in Las Vegas, this is just a straight-up pick em. So that shows you right there how evenly match I think that this game is. But I do give the edge to Ohio State with having EJ Liddell down low. Yeah, well, I guess I'll start with this. I think last time I was on this podcast, you asked me about a team that was kind of flying under the radar that could be a potential Final Four threat. And I gave you Ohio State. And they turned around, lost by 15 at Maryland. Then they lost at home against Nebraska. And they finished the regular season 1-4, and four, also including a loss to Penn State. 
So I feel like I'm eating crow a little bit there at Ohio State, but I still am not quite done believing in this Ohio State team. And the main reason is Malachi Branham, as I mentioned last time I was on. I think this is a spotlight opportunity for Malachi Branham to show what he's capable of and what he's done in the latter half of the season. A breakout guy who's going to see his draft stock rise. And I think if you look at duos in this tournament, it doesn't really get much better than EJ Liddell and Malachi Branham. But with that being said, it can't only be those two guys. And I think the health of Zed Key and Kyle Young is going to be something that could very well determine how Ohio State season unfolds. Because although those guys might not be the hugest names in those tournaments, I really think that they hold the glue of what this Ohio State team looks like. And Kyle Young's battle with injuries before, that's not really anything new. It's kind of similar to last season. And I think that's kind of the reason why Ohio State got bounced in the first round of the NCAA tournament against Oral Roberts. And he was banged up. And even though he's not necessarily the guy who's going to put up a ton of points, I think that he just kind of, like I said, holds the glue of this team. So they have a great duo. Loyal Chicago, I, I like this team. And I thought that they performed pretty admirably earlier in the season when they played against Michigan State and Auburn. But in conference play, they just have this tendency of falling behind early and having to dig out some wins late. I like this team, but I'm not really convinced that it's the similar Cameron Crutwig type teams of the past that are capable of going on this run. I know they've been kind of a sneaky Cinderella again, but I also kind of wonder if that is mostly fans who just see the name Loyola Chicago and kind of buy in. I don't think this is necessarily the same team, even though it's a good one. It should be a good matchup either way, but I think I'm going to roll with Ohio State in this one. Yep, I'm in agreement with you there. I just think that the low post play of Ohio State going to be a little bit too much in this spot for Loyola Chicago to overcome. And Eli, when it comes to everything that we're getting on Friday, we mentioned a couple of the marquee matchups. Is there another game or two that you're really going to be having your eyes on? Well, obviously, all these games are very important at this point, but is there a game or two that you think has some perhaps upset implications or you just want to see a little bit more in general out of a team that many people think might wind up going far? I really like this Virginia Tech team. It was a hokey squad that I was so high on entering the preseason. I thought this was a dark horse Final Four team. I think Mike Young is an excellent coach, and I love the way that he runs offense. And for at least three quarters of the season, this Virginia Tech team, you could put them on the short list of disappointing teams in all of college basketball, but they've only lost two games since late January, and it was just a home loss to North Carolina and a road loss to Clemson. That's been it. They went on a great run during the ACC tournament and had arguably their very best performance of the entire regular season in the ACC title game against Duke, which was a 15-point win. And this team is so dangerous. They're third in the nation in three-point shooting. Mike Young just does an excellent job getting the ball to the players who matter most. And we've seen this come back to hurt a lot of other teams that just aren't able to get the ball to their stars. I think mainly Iowa with Keegan Murray here, but that's kind of a redirect. But I just think with Virginia Tech, being an 11 seed and being one of the top 25 teams by most analytical measures, that screams a pretty dangerous 11 seed to me. And 11 seeds just in general typically outperform expectations in the NCAA tournament. And going up against a Texas team that has been kind of hot and cold, they've, they've won just two of their last six games. I don't know if the Longhorns are really capable of putting together much of a run here. So I, I like Virginia Tech, and the winner of that game will most likely get Purdue in the second round. And Purdue has obviously shown their lapses on the defensive end, and they haven't quite been as dominant on offense later in the season either. So I'm intrigued by how Virginia Tech looks, whether that was just a four-game type fluke in the ACC tournament or whether this is legit and they've turned the corner. And then one last one I'll get to you. I don't know which pod gave you the most trouble when filling out, but 
this LSU, Iowa State 6-11, and Wisconsin Colgate 3-14. versus 14. I did not know what to make of this pod because you have LSU, which fired Will Wade the day before the selection show, an Iowa State team that, sure, they had a ton of quad one wins during the regular season, but they also end up on the 11 line and really struggle to score the basketball at times. And then you have the Wisconsin-Colgate matchup where you have a stud in Johnny Davis. He's hobbled. And then you have a Colgate team that's been there before and can shoot really well. So I don't know what to make out of those those matchups there. So I'm intrigued to follow what those four teams look like because at this point, I could legitimately see probably two or three teams out of this pod go out and head to the Sweet 16. So that's that's a, a pretty fascinating one. I'll leave you on those. Oh, yeah. I think that that LSU game is very, very intriguing. You've got a Wisconsin team that – Whenever Johnny Davis isn't firing on all cylinders, they look very, very vulnerable. And Iowa State team that really has no offense whatsoever and an LSU team that, honestly, I'm relatively high on. But once again, you've got the coaching situation there. That could wind up ultimately being a positive. That could be a big, giant negative. Who knows? But that's why they play the games. And Eli, I know you do a tremendous job all season long being able to follow college basketball. I know you've done a great job all season long taking a look at this. I know that you guys over there at Check CBB going to be very busy the next few weeks, but your work doesn't end there. I know that you guys are going to be doing a great job tracking the transfer portal, much like you did last offseason. I know that you guys are probably going to be joining me a lot during the offseason, talking about all these moves, getting set for next season. list goes on and on. So let the good people at home know they're able to follow you on social media and just everything that you've got going on in general. Yeah, you said it's a busy time of year. Not only tournament games, but we've got coaching moves, the portal starts in the heat up it is a it's a busy time to be in in this business that's for sure but you can catch all of our stuff on heatcheckcbb.com and we'll be posting frequently at heatcheckcbb on twitter as well throughout march and obviously beyond as well eli does absolutely amazing work over there at heatcheckcbb one of the best in the business at just putting in the work day in and day out looking at all the stuff during the off season heatcheckcbb really a great resource for anyone that loves college basketball and we love having Eli on the podcast. So big thanks to him for joining me right here on Coast to Coast Hoops, now part of the VEASAN family podcast. And coming up next, it is that time of the podcast to give you picks and analysis on every game on the betting board for this college basketball Friday as we hit some bank shots. And we're back here in lovely Las Vegas for Coast to Coast Hoops with myself, Greg Hoops, and now part of the VEASAN family podcast. Always a pleasure to get Eli Becker on this podcast. He does an amazing job, has joined me all season long, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier. In a few weeks, it's going to be the college basketball offseason. He joins me a lot with that. He does a great job tracking this stuff all year long. One of the most respected minds, in my opinion, that you're going to find in college basketball. He does absolutely amazing work. So, big thanks to him for joining me in the last segment. Now it is that time of the podcast to give you picks and analysis on every game on the betting board for this College Basketball Friday as we hit some bank shots. Most financial establishments close at a certain time, but not here. It is time for a side in total on every game on today's betting board bank shots. Do note that as per usual, any changes that are made to these plays will be listed up on my Twitter feed at GUNRNRSQUARTY1. We're going to be going by pod with this. That's the way that the rotation numbers wind up going with this one. So we're going to go with you four games out there in Greenville, South Carolina. Then the four games out there in the great state of Wisconsin. The four games in Pittsburgh. And then we wrap it up with the four games in California. So... We're pretty much going geographically here, and we're going to be starting off with this, ironically enough, very late game out there in South Carolina. But still, first game that is listed from the great state of South Carolina, 751-752 on the betting board. You've got Davidson taking on Michigan State. 
Michigan State's between a pick'em and a one-point favorite. And your turn on this game, in between 140.5 and, and 141. I am on Davidson on the money line. Got a little bit of a plus price on this, so we are going to be riding with that with Davidson. This is a team that is in the top 10 in all of college basketball in terms of three-point shooting percentage. And it's not just that they do a solid job of being able to shoot threes overall. They're really good on the road. They shoot over 41% from three-point range in a road and neutral court environment. One of just four teams in all of college basketball being able to shoot north of 40% from three-point range on the road. You've got Luka Bravich who's been able to do a very solid job for this team. He's been able to chip in there right around 15.7 boards per contest. Foster Lawyer, he's got revenge on the mind as well. This is a gentleman that wound up actually beginning his career at Michigan State. Wound up transferring out after he was Mr. Basketball in the state of Michigan a few seasons ago. So he is really going to be able to want to get this one home. Then you take a look at Michigan State and you really don't have that star player. You've been able to have one guy average double figures for the same in Gabe Brown. And Brown has been solid. He's been able to give you right around four rebounds. He chips in there 11 and a half points per game. But you need Marcus Bingham to be really, really be able to step up in this game. Nine points, six boards. Has been able to average 2.2 blocks per contest. But much of the year was spent in Tom Izzo's dugouts to his credit in the last two games of the Big Ten tournament. 17 rebounds in six blocks for him. But this is a Davidson team that they take a lot of shots from three-point range. I do think that Michigan State is going to have a little bit of a tough time with that because Michigan State, they're a solid three-point shooting team. They rank in the top 25 at all of college basketball. Ty Walker shoots right around 50% from three-point range. He's been able to do all four assists per contest. Also gets loose with the ball. This is a Michigan State team that they turn the ball over a little bit over 13 times per contest. So that is going to be a big-time issue, in my opinion, with that regard. But you just take a look at the way that Michigan State has been guarding on the perimeter and at least something to be desired. That said, it is a Davidson team that they themselves, with regards to defensive efficiency, just the amount of points they give up on a per-possession basis. It is a little bit lax. Davidson, they rank 332nd in the country with regards to opponents' three-point shooting percentage. Michigan State certainly going to be able to do a little bit better than that. But with that said, Michigan State, they're still 172nd with this regard as well. So you've got big, giant wards with regards to both of these teams. With regards to being able to guard the three, and I think that Davidson is going to be a little bit more lethal with that aspect. Hunjun Lee being able to give you right around six rebounds per game. He does a good job chipping in their 16 points. I think it's also going to be a big difference baker. And Davidson, 9.8 turnovers per contest, top 15 in all of college basketball, taking care of the ball. So I do like Davidson outright in this spot. Set them as one and a half point favorite. Me and my total 137 and a half. You've got a Davidson team that ranks outside the top three with regards to possessions per game. They really like to slow things down. So I'm looking at the under and I'm taking a look at Davidson. All right. 753, 754 on the betting board. We've got Cal State, Fullerton, and Duke. Duke has found themselves an 18 and a half point favorite. Your total is saying we're team 145 and 145 and a half. I do think that it, Duke should be a relatively sizable favorite, but take a look at it. Last three games, Duke's defensive efficiency, the amount of points that they allow on a per possession basis, worse of any team to be able to make the NCAA tournament. They have really been faltering on that side of things, and you take a look at what you're able to get out of this Cal State Fullerton team, and you got a guy in EJ Onasiki who's been very solid for this team. 16.5 points, 8.5 boards. It's a Fullerton team that they do a good job of being able to generate steals. Damari Milstead, along with Trey Maddox Jr., have been able to combine for 3.1 steals per contest. Milstead shooting 37% from three. Now, Fullerton, they only shoot right around 33% from three-point range for the season, but you take a look at the way that things have been able to shape up for this team, and it's really been solid because Fullerton was just absolutely anemic from three-point range to be able to begin the year. That's why they were relying upon guys like a Vincent Lee towards the beginning of the year to be able to get things going, and no question, you're going to have a Duke team that's going to be a little bit more lethal on that side of it. A.J. Griffin is the guy that in road and neutral court environments is able to give you right around 11 to 12 points per contest. He's shooting darn near 50% from three-point range, so he has been very solid with 
with that aspect, but you take a look at Cal State Fullerton. Out of conference, they were a team that they shot sub-30% from three-point range. You could tell that they just weren't able to get things going. In a Big West that actually has some of the best three-point shooting defenses in all of college basketball. You've got a UC Irvine team that actually ranks number one in the country with that aspect. Got a couple others that are very highly up there, but with that said, they've been able to shoot north of 33% from three-point range ever since then, so I do think that that is going to be good for this team. Jalen Harris has been a big reason why shooting 42.5% from three-point range with 9.5 points per contest. I do think that Trevor Keels is going to have a little bit of an imprint on this game. He's been able to do a solid job along Jeremy Roach as well out there in the Duke backcourt. These two guys have done a good job of being able to take care of the ball. Duke is a team that they only turn the ball over right around 10.2 times per contest. Keels is a guy that's able to give you 12 points, 3 assists per contest. Roach ships in there, 3 assists per game as well. Mark Williams does have the leg up down low with 3 blocks per game, but I just don't think that the defense of Duke is going to allow them to be able to cover this sort of a number. You take a look at Duke's defense and they've given up at least 76 points at each other last 4 games. Meanwhile, this is a Fullerton team that they have allowed fewer than 60 points at 3 out of their last 4, so they're coming in in good form. I did wind up saying this total at 144. I do think that Duke is going to really tighten the screws up a little bit more on this defense at Fullerton, a bottom one on our team with regards to possessions per game, so I do look at the total under, and with Fullerton, set them a 14-point dog, so we'll take the points. 755, 756 on the banging board. USC and Miami are going to be doing battle. USC is a two-point favorite, and your total is anywhere team 139.5 and 140. I take a look at Miami, and I just do not trust in this defense. Outside the top 225 with regards to points allowed on a per-possession basis, and this is a team that they've really had a tough time with regards to rebound rate. They're a bottom half of all of college basketball team with that regard. Now, they've been able to have some solid contributions from the backcourt. You've got Cam Augusti coupled with Isaiah Wong. They're able to combine for about 33.5 points per contest and I do like the George Mason transfer that has been able to help out this team in Jordan Miller. He's really been the top rebounder for this team. 10.6 boards. He generates 1.8 steals per game and speaking of seals, that's what Miami does a very good job of. They're a pickpocketing team. They get 8.5 seals per contest with regards to steals on a per possession basis. So live ball turnovers. They're in the top 25 in all of college basketball and they only turn the ball over 9.6 times per contest themselves. You've got Charlie Moore who combines with Cam Augusti to shoot 37.5% per three. Moore is able to give you four and a half assists per game, 12 and a half points. So he's been solid. And Sam Bordenberg is a guy with size that's able to stretch a floor. Six foot ten gentleman that's shooting 43% from three-point range. That said, he's very hit or miss with regards to his offense. Ten points or fewer in four of the team's last five contests. And then for USC, I think that Isaiah Mobley, his versatility is really going to be able to take care of that that is brought to the table by Sam Mordenberg. 14 and a half points, eight and a half boards, three assists, shoots 35% from three-point range. Boogie Ellis Drew Peterson. Great name, and they combine for 25 points, nine and a half boards, nearly six assists, and these guys shoot 39% from three-point range. Now, USC, they've been rough at the free throw line to save the least this season. They shoot as a whole 66.5% the charity strike, but since conference plays began, it's been more around 71-72%, so by no means has it been like terrific or anything like that, but at the same time, it's been a little bit more solid. This is a Miami team that they're going to need to look to take a lot of threes, because this is a USC team with regards to opponents' two-point shooting percentage they're one of the most solid teams out there in the tournament. When you take a look at the three-point shooting defense for USC, it is 217th at all of college basketball. But with that said, with USC, they've actually allowed opponents to not shoot it so well on the road. 29% is what opponents are shooting in a road and neutral court environment from three against USC. More like 35.5% when they are at home. So that's very intriguing. And when it comes to cutting off the three-point arc, Miami 265th 
in all of college basketball. So I do think that USC is going to be able to get the job done. Shafaz Goodwin is able to give you six points per game. So I do think that USC is going to be able to win from within two mid-tempo teams here. Obviously, Miami not necessarily playing a lot of defense, but I did wind up setting this total at a 139.5. Here at 139.5 to 140, I would rather take the 140 over rather than the 139.5 over. So I'm going to be taking a look at the under because I do think that jump shooting is going to wind up waning a little bit more in this game. So I'm on the under and I'm on USC in this spot. So 757, 758 on the bang board. You've got Jacksonville State, and they're going to be taking on Auburn. Auburn is a 15 and a half to a 16 point favorite, and your total on this game in between 137 half and 138. And when it comes to this Auburn team, they certainly have not been the same team when they have been away from the state of Alabama. With that said, I do think that they should be a favorite in this spot. I could only make it 14, though. Jacksonville State is a top five team in all of college basketball when it comes to three point shooting percentage on the road. They shoot over 40% from distance when they're in a road in a neutral court environment. That is something that really steps out to me and with Darian Adams. He is going to be able to do a good job against an Auburn backcourt that could be a little bit shaky. 15 and a half points, 5 boards, 4 assists, shoots 38.5% from 3-point range. He does sometimes get loose with the ball, but 2 turnovers are fewer now. 3 out of the team's last 5 games, so he's been able to buckle down there. It is an Auburn team that you've got Jabari Smith and he's been amazing. 17 points, 7 boards, shoots 43% from 3-point range. He's a little bit more effective at home than he is on the road, though. On the road, he's more of a mid-30 3-point shooter now. Comes in in really good form. 15 plus points in each other team's last five contests. 21 plus in three out of the last four. Guy that's able to give you a block and a steal per contest. And speaking of blocks, that's what you get out of Walker Kessler. Four and a half blocks per contest, but take a look at the Jacksonville State team, man. They take a little bit north of 44% of their shots from three-point range. So that means that Walker Kessler's effectiveness is going to be mitigated a little bit more in this game. And you do have a relatively solid backcourt when it comes to this Jacksonville State team on top of what you're able to get out of Adams. I do like the fact that Jalen Gibbs, a transfer from Mount St. Mary's, has been able to shoot right around 40% from three-point range. He gives you 11 points per game. Brandon Huffman is a transfer from North Carolina. He's able to give you down low nine points, right around a block, six rebounds per game. So got a lot of guys that they know their role. They know their role very well. Jacksonville State does turn the ball for 13 and a half times for contest. That is a little bit of an issue. Auburn does have Wendell Green. Guy that's able to give you 12 points, 5 assists, seal and a half per contest. The big thing is that Alan Flanagan never really got online for Auburn. He's only been able to give you 6 half points per contest. And you take a look at this Auburn team, and aside from Jabari Smith, you've really got only one other guy that gives you more than 2.5 points per contest that shoots above 32% from 3-point range in Zepp Jasper. So it's an Auburn team that I just don't think that they're going to be able to get that separation. Auburn does have the advantage down low, but at the same time, I do think that you're going to see Jacksonville State do a solid job of being able to knock down their three-point shots. This is an Auburn team that is relatively solid with their perimeter defense. They're right around 60th in all of college basketball with regards to opponent three-point shooting percentage, but that said, it's right around 28.7% of threes that are made when Auburn is at home. More like 34% on the road, so you do have your fear that I set this line at 14, so I'm going to be willing to take the points from Jacksonville State. This is still an Auburn team that ranks in the top 50 with regards to possessions per game. Jacksonville State, neither a fast nor slow team. I do think that there's going to be a lot of quick buckets in this game. Set this total at 146. I'm willing to go over, and I'm going to be willing to take the points over Jacksonville State. 759, 760 on the banking board. LSU and Iowa State are going to be doing battle. Iowa State has found themselves a 4.0 die with your total on this game. Everton 127.5 and 128.5. 
You fire up all these stat sheet numbers that you want on this game. But with that said, a lot of it is going to be coming down to motivation. And I do think that LSU is going to be coming out and they're going to be giving a lot of fight for this interim coaching regime. Now, obviously, it's a very strange situation to say the least. But this is still an LSU team that they ranked in the top five in all of college basketball. The guards points a lot on a per possession basis throughout the entirety of the season. They should be able to do a solid job of being able to hold up at the point of attack in this one. And I do think that LSU's numbers were warped a little bit by the fact that Xavier Pinson was out for much of the season due to an injury. Now he's back in the fold. I do think that this is going to be an LSU offense that is going to be able to fire on all cylinders. Both of these teams are very solid at being able to generate steals. With regards to steals force on a per possession basis, you've got an LSU team that is number one in all of college basketball. Iowa State, they are number 16. With that said, this is an LSU team that you've also got Darius Days, who's able to combine with Terry Eason. These guys have size. They combine for 14 rebounds per game, 31 points per contest, and both shoot in the mid-30s for three-point range. With Iowa State you just don't necessarily have a lot of three-point shooting with regards to this team. I do like what you will be able to get out of Isaiah Brockington. Has really been the heart and soul of this offense. Guy that's able to give you 17 points, 7 boards per contest. And then Gabe Kelsher, Tyrese Hunter are a pair of guys that give you right in the neighborhood of about 9 to 10 points per contest. But both of these guys shoot sub-25% from three-point. To their credit, they generate three seals per contest. But also with Iowa State, 14 turnovers per contest. That is going to play right into the hands of LSU. I think that LSU is going to do a solid job of being able to turn defense at offense. You do take a look at this LSU team. And they have been giving up a couple more points recently, 68 or more in each of the last four contests. Iowa State, they've been bludgeoned a little bit as well. They've given up at least 72 points in four of their last five games. It feels like the defenses have both been figured out a little bit more throughout the season. I do think that the unfamiliarity is something that you do want to be taking note of. But when it comes to this Iowa State team, you don't really have a lot of depth. Andre Kunich along Caleb Grill both give you right around seven points per contest. They shoot it okay from three-point range. But I take a look at guys like Efton Reed, Eric Gaines. I think that they're going to be able to do a solid job for an LSU team that they do shoot right around 73% the free line. Iowa State more on 69%. LSU dealing with a very strange circumstance, but I think that they're going to be up for this game. I think that they've got something to prove. I mentioned the fact that the defenses are getting a little bit figured out, so I did wind up saying this at 134. I'm looking at the over. And with LSU, I just think that they're far more talented than Iowa State and a little bit deeper. So, set this line at 8. I'm going to lay with LSU, and I'm going to be taking a look at this total over, as that was, uh, by the way, game number one in the great state of Wisconsin. This game is also in the great state of Wisconsin. 761, 762 on the betting board. Colgate and Wisconsin. Wisconsin's anywhere between a 7.5 and an 8-point favorite. And your tallest game anywhere between 139.5 and 140. I did wind up awarding a full point and a half here to Wisconsin for home court advantage. And with that, I still wound up making this line 6. If Colgate were playing this game more in like Oklahoma, where it's truly a neutral court, I would almost consider them to be advancing on my bracket. I mean, that's how good this Colgate team is. They're one of just two teams in all of college basketball shooting at least 40% from three-point range. Now, Colgate is a team that they leave a little bit of something to be desired on the defensive end. This is a team that, when it comes to points allowed on a per-possession basis, it has been a little bit up and down for them. They are currently clocking in right in the neighborhood about 127th, and when they wind up playing in a road and neutral court, it is a little bit more falterous for them. They give up right around 16 points more per one hundred possessions in a road and neutral record environment rather than at home. And they face a Wisconsin team that we're going to call it what it is. They just don't necessarily do anything great. You take a look at Wisconsin. They are outside the top 80 with regards to points scored and points allowed on a per possession basis. They don't necessarily dominate down low. The big thing for them is that Johnny Davis has been legitimately a top three player in all of college basketball this year. And I would argue that when Johnny Davis is on his game versus off his game, 
it impacts a team more than any other in all of college basketball. You take a look at Johnny Davis, 19.5 points, 8 rebounds, a steal per contest, and what is interesting about Johnny Davis is that he's been significantly better on the road than he has been at home, shooting 23.5% from 3-point range in home games in road and neutral court environments, shooting more like 39.5% from 3, 17.5 points per game at home, 22.5 points per game on the road. His steals double when he's away from the state of Wisconsin as well, so I find that to be fascinating. Chucky Epper has been able to come on strong a little bit down the stretch. He wound up having that big buzzer beater against Purdue a few days ago. Eight plus points in each of the team's last four contests coming into this. So he's been able to give the team a little bit of help. Has been able to give the team at least three assists in three of the team's last four contests. Tyler Walls able to give you 11.5 points, 5.5 rebounds per game. But I do think that Keegan Records is going to be able to do an okay job down low here for Colgate. I don't know if he wins the battle, but I think that he holds up at the point of attack. 10 points, 6 rebounds per game. Nelly Cummings is a sad sheet sufferer along with Jack Ferguson. These two guys combined for 27 points, 5.5 assists, a little bit over a seal per contest. You've got Cummings shooting 36% for 3, Ferguson 42% for a 3-point range. Colgate only shoots 69.5% the free line, but they do a good job of taking care of the ball. 11.3 turnovers per contest. This is a little bit of a faster Wisconsin team as well. Typically with regards to total possessions per game, this is a team that they rank in the bottom 50. They're more around 270, 265-ish, so they've sped up a little bit. Colgate is outside the top 200, but they're not very far outside the top 200, so they're a little bit more of a controlled team for a team that, when the guards point scored on a per-possession basis, Colgate does rank 24th, and really not much of a fall-off in a road or neutral court environment, so I did wind up setting this total at a 140. This is going to be a spot in which I do wind up taking the points with Colgate, and here at 139.5, I'm going to be taking a look at the over as well. Sub-63, sub-64 on the bang board. Virginia Tech and Texas are going to be doing battle. Texas is back to being a pick'em to a one-point favorite, and your total is anywhere between 123 and 124 with Virginia Tech. This has been a team that has been able to knock down their threes all season long, but it is a bunch that all of a sudden they've been able to play a little bit more defense as well. Virginia Tech in the top 20 with regards to three-point shooting percentage, right around 39% as a collective, and overall offensive efficiency. They're number 22 in all of college basketball in terms of points scored on a per-possession basis. Texas, they rank 98th in this category, but where Texas has really been able to hang their hat is the fact that they do generate right around eight seals per contest. This is a Texas to see that with regards to points allowed on a per possession basis, they are 12th in all of college basketball now. Be alert. They give up right around 22 more points per 100 possessions when they are in a road and neutral court environment. And this is a Texas team that, with regards to being able to guard the perimeter, they've been able to do a relatively solid job. Opponents are shooting right around 31.8% from three-point range against them, and that's really the one big thing that they don't have too much of a fall-off between home and road. So I do think that that's going to be very important in this spot. You do have a Virginia Tech team that they've been able to get quite a bit out of some of the ancillary pieces. You've got Darius Maddox, a guy that has been able to do a very solid job being able to shoot right around 50% for three-point range. Sean Padula has had his moments as well. Kevin Aluma, couple with Justin Mutz, have been able to do a good job down low as versatile pieces as well. Mutz, 10 points, 7.5 rebounds, 3.5 assists, a seal and a block per contest. Aluma gives you a block, right around 16 points per game, but I do think that Timmy Allen and his versatility is going to be big. A guy that's able to give you 12.5 points, 6.5 points, has just stepped up time and time again for this Texas team. A guy that has been able to give you double figures in now four of the team's last five contests, and then with Marcus Carr, he still is not the world's greatest fit with Texas, but you take a look at what he did down the stretch, and he was really able to rein it in with regards to the turnovers. Six total turnovers in the team's last five games, so he's doing a better job of being able to protect the ball. 
You've got guys like Courtney Ramey, Andrew Jones that wound up returning from last year, combining for about 20 points per contest. Both of these guys able to knock down threes, and Texas is a team that shoots 75% at the free line. I do think that Texas is going to be able to generate some swipes. I do think that Christian Bishop has been able to give you 7.5 rebounds has been able to do a solid job down the stretch. Is going to be able to hold up at the point of attack to get Texas to the victory in this one. Set Texas as a three-point favorite. Like I said, with Texas, they do have some big splits with regards to defense. Both of these teams are outside, though, the top 330 with regards to possessions brain, but I do think that you wind up getting late game felling. Semi-total at 130, so going over and well on a late here with Texas. 765, 766 on the begging board. Purdue and Yale do battle. Purdue is between a 16 and 16 and a half point favorite with your total anywhere between 143 and a half and 144 and a half. I think that this is just a very bad matchup for Yale. You've got a Yale team that has Azir Swain, who's been able to do a solid job for this team. He's able to give you right around 17 points per contest. He's able to chip in their 4.5 rebounds per game, but problem is, his 4.5 rebounds per game, it's really leading the way. You don't have a single guy on this Yale team that gives you more than 5 rebounds per game, and now you have to go up against Travion Williams, coupled with Zach Eady. Both of these guys have been absolutely amazing. They combine to be able to give you right around 15 rebounds per contest. You take a look at what you've been able to get out of Mr. Jaden Ivey as well, being able to chip in their 17 and a half points, five rebounds, three assists, and he has been absolutely incredible. And then you take a look at the flip side for Yale, and you just need to be able to get a little bit more out of some of these ancillary pieces. Jalen Gibbeton has been able to give you 11 and a half points, a guy that's able to shoot right around 31% for three, and to the credit of Yale, they're a top 50 team with regards to being able to guard the three-point arc. This is a Purdue team that they really do rely upon the three. They shoot 39% from distance, but if they wind up missing those threes, they're just going to get second and third chances down low. Sasha Stefanovic is able to give you 11 points, three assists per contest. Very good Purdue team at being able to assist by committee now. Purdue, a team that has not been good on defense. They are outside the top 175 with regards to points allowed on a per-possession basis, so that is certainly going to be nipping them in the butt in this one, but you do take a look at this Purdue team, and they have just been incredibly dominant on offense. Number three in the country with regards to points scored on a per-possession basis. You've got a Yale team that they certainly have been far from that. They're a 188th with that regard, and for Yale, their team that's averaging 11.5 points fewer per 100 possessions in a road and neutral court environment. You just take a look at some of these step-up games for Yale, and they have faltered in darn near every one of them. That game that they wanted playing against St. Mary's on the road, they wind up losing by double figures. They got blown out by Seton Hall, 80-44. to They wind up losing by 8 to a Vermont team that wound up getting a 13 seed. So, I mean, it's just a case in which Yale, every single time they step up in competition, they just have gotten blown out in a lot of these games. I think that Purdue is going to be able to do the same to them. Set this line at 18 and a half. I'm going to lay it with Purdue. Maybe my total 146 and a half as well. I do think that you're going to get some points up on the board from a Purdue team that's not playing a lot of defense, but playing a whole heck of a lot of offense. So looking at the over, and we're going to be taking a look at Purdue. We move on to 767, 768 on the betting board. Houston and UAB are going to be doing battle from Pittsburgh. Houston is between an 8 and an 8.5 point favorite, and your total is anywhere between 136 and 137. And when it comes to this UAB team, I think that they're pretty much a little bit of a lesser version of Houston. With that said, I do think that they're going to be able to hold in this game. I set this line at 6.5, so I'm going to be willing to take the points with UAB. UAB has a guy, a Trey Jemison, who does a solid job down low. 7.75 rebounds, blocking half per contest. Now, they're going to be going up against a Houston team that, with regards to the percentage of their misses that they get an offensive rebound on, they are the number one team in all of college basketball with that regard, but with that said, you do have a UAB team that they do also have a guy in KJ Buffin who winds up coming in from Ole Miss. He's able to give you 10 points, 6.5 rebounds per game. You've been able to have Jelly Walker, aka Jordan Walker, give you 
19 points per contest headline this team. And UAB, very good at generating swipes. They give you right around 10 steals per contest. That's in the top 10 in all of college basketball. Now, Houston, you take a look at them, and they've been dominant on both sides of things. They're in the top 15 in both offensive and defensive efficiency. And when it comes to points allowed on a per-possession basis, this is a Houston team that they come into the tournament number three. With that said, this is also a Houston team that they are giving up right around 15 and a half points more per 100 possessions basis in a road and neutral court environment. And this is a UAB team that they've got their balance themselves. They're in the top 35 with regards to both offensive and defensive efficiency as well. So I do take a look at that and I think that they're going to be able to hold in there. Guys like Michael Erto giving you double figures, chipping in their SEO per contest. I think it's going to be big. Houston doesn't necessarily have a lot of depth because Tremont Mark and Marcus Sasser wound up going out with injuries early on this season. Kyler Edwards is able to give you 13 and a half points right around four and a half boards. Shoots the ball from three point range. You've got to love what you've been able to get out of Fabian White along Josh Carlton. White, it sounds like, is going to be good to go after he was dealing with a little bit of a back issue. These two guys combined to be able to give you 25 points, 14 rebounds per game. White is a guy that shoots nearly 40% from three-point range, but Houston is a team that they rank in the bottom 50 in this tournament when it comes to free-throw shooting percentage, so I do think that that's going to be a little bit costly for them. UAB is not necessarily a team that they necessarily can every single one of their free throws, but with that said, it's a UAB team that they're relatively solid at the free-throw line. They shoot right in the neighborhood about 74% at the free-throw line and 75.5% in a road and neutral guard environment. So I do want to saying this line at 6.5. I'm going to be willing to take the points. Maybe my total 136.5. You've got a Houston team that they do well on both sides of the ball. UAB does relatively well on both sides of the ball as well. This is a spot in which with it being relatively close to my number, I would rather have a 137 under rather than a 136 over. So I'm going to be looking at a little bit more of an under in this spot and I'm going to be willing to take the points here with UAB. 769, 770 on the banging board. Chattanooga and Illinois are going to be doing battle. Illinois is an 8-point favorite in your Toronto game. Here between 135.5 and 136.5, I would have said Chattanooga as a 4-point underdog. Now, full disclaimer, I did wind up advancing Chattanooga on my bracket. I think that there's a chance that they pull it off outright. I personally wound up just taking the points. As I always say, you should be doing a little bit of different work with regards to your bracket rather than with your actual bets, and I wound up doing that in this spot. But with Chattanooga, advancing them in my bracket, just taking the points when it comes to a betting standpoint in this game. With Chattanooga, we got Malachi Smith, who is just absolutely amazing for this team. 20 points, 6 boards, 3 assists, shoots 40% from 3-point range. Chattanooga, top 40 team with regards to points scored on a per-possession basis. And you do take a look at this Illinois team, and they've been rock solid with regards to their offense all season long. Jacob Granderson has been dealing with some ailments, but he, along with Alfonso Plummer, combined to be able to shoot about 40% from 3-point range. Plummer gives you between 15 and 16 points per contest. Granderson more around 10 to 11. Illinois is a team that they rank in the top 35 with regards to points scored on a per-possession basis, so they've been able to do a solid job with that regard, but the big thing is Andre Carbello. This from Cooper Watson of Busting Brackets. Whenever he plays at least 20 minutes for this Illinois team, they are 3-6 and six straight up. When he winds up playing fewer than 20 minutes, they wind up going 6-2 and two in those games. And then when he winds up not playing at all, Illinois is 13-1. and one. So that shows you just how bad things are when Andre Carbello is out there on the floor. And I think that Silvio De Sosa is going to be able to match up with Kofi Coburn. Coburn has obviously been terrific this year. 20 points, 10 boards, a block per contest. One of the most immovable forces in all of college basketball. But you take a look at De Sosa and he's been able to give you right around 7 rebounds per game. Has been an effective score all season long as well. Then you take a look at what you're able to get with regards to the backcourt as well. David Jean-Baptiste is the gentleman 
Furman that wound up hitting that big shot against Furman. A guy that's able to give you 14.5 points per contest. Shoots 37.5% from three-par. And Chattanooga shoots 75% of the free line. They're very good with the ball. 11 turnovers per contest. They generate right around 7 steals per game. So, good balance with that regard. Illinois is a team that they don't force a lot of on-ball pressure. Right around 5 steals per contest. Trent Frazier is a guy that I do like in the backcourt. 12 points, 4 assists, steal per contest. Shoots in the mid-30s from three-par. And to the credit of Illinois. Your top three guards, Plummer, Frazier, Granderson, they all shoot at least 80% of the free line. So, that is very solid for this team. But, I do think that Chattanooga going to be able to get by the ancillary pieces. Like even a guy like Adarius Banks has been able to step up for this team. Being able to give you right around 8.5 points, 5 rebounds. I do like the makeup of this Chattanooga team. Like I said, I advanced Chattanooga on my bracket with regards to my bets. I just wound up taking the points here with Chattanooga. And with that said, when it comes to the total, I did wind up setting it at a 135. You've got an all-in team that they're relatively controlled with their tempo. This is a Chattanooga team that they rank in the bottom 50 with regards to possession frame. So I do think that they're going to get their slow and methodical style looking at the under and take the points with the mocks. 771, 772 on the bang board. Ohio State and Loyal Chicago do battle. Loyal Chicago is between a pick'em to a one-point favorite, and your total is between 132 and 133, and that said, this is an Ohio State team that I want to make it a one-and-a-half-point favorite. Talked about this with Eli Becker. I think that EJ Liddell is 19 points, seven boards, two-and-a-half blocks per game, really going to be able to take hold in this game. Also, she's nearly 40% from three-point range. I think that that's just such a tough matchup for a Loyal Chicago team that they really do rely upon their final four returner in Lucas Williamson to do it all for the team. And Williamson has been absolutely tremendous for this bunch. You just take a look at what he's been able to do. He's been able to supply you with 14 points, five assists for a loyal Chicago team that they're in the top 15 in all of college basketball. It comes to the three-point shooting percentage. You're shooting as a collective 38.3% from three-point range. You just don't necessarily have that size down low. Ryan Schwieger, a couple with Ahir Ugwak, both give you right around nine points per contest. So these guys are able to do a relatively solid job there. But then you take a look at Malachi Branham. In a road and neutral court environment, he's been shooting over 45% from three-point range. He's been able to give this Ohio State team right around 15 points per contest ever since the beginning of conference play with Loyal Chicago. This is a team that on the road, they do experience a little bit of fall-off shooting 40% from three-point range at home. Road and neutral court environment, more like 36.3% from distance. This has been an Ohio State team that has been a little bit banged up. Zed Key along with Kyle Younger dealing with injuries. Both of these guys are game-time decisions. I think that you wind up getting one of the two. I think the Key is probably going to be good to go, but I wouldn't doubt it if Young is going to be unable to go in this spot. That's sort of how I wind up handicapping this, so that is accounted for, but with regards to Ohio State, I also do think that these guys like a Michi Johnson, coupled with Jamari Wheeler, who gives you three assists per contest, going to be able to do a solid job as well. Ohio State as a collective shoots 76% at the free line. Got the Loyola Chicago team that they're back in the top 30 with yards points allowed on a per possession basis. Ohio State, they're outside the top 125, but Ohio State really firing all cylinders when it comes to offense. This is a team that, with regards to points scored on a per possession basis, has really been one of the most dominant teams in all of college basketball from start to finish, ranking 19th in the country with that regard. And Loyola Chicago, they do a solid job of being able to get there slow and Methodical offense going 30th with that regard as well, but scoring in a road and neutral court environment right around 16 and a half points fewer per one hour possessions, I think is going to be a little bit doomsday. I wound up setting Ohio State as a point and a half favorite, so I'm willing to take them as pickup slash a money line underdog. Me, my total 133 and a half as well. I do think that you wind up getting Lake Felling. I think that both of these teams are going to be able to knock down some threes. So looking at the over, and I'm looking at Ohio State. 773, 774 on the bang board. Villanova and Delaware do battle. Delaware is between a 15 and 15 and a half point underdog in your tallest game, They're between 133 and 134. You got Dylan Painter who actually came over from Villanova for Delaware down low. He hasn't necessarily been the main headline guy though recently. He wound up dealing with a little bit of an injury midseason and as a result, you've seen a lot out of Austin Carr. Now, for Painter overall this season, he's been able to give you right around 6.5 rebounds, 
rebounds per game, but you take a look at what you've been able to get out of Carr recently, and he's been magnificent for the year. 10 points, 5.5 rebounds per game, but it's given the team 7 plus rebounds in each out of the last three contests. A guy that is able to do a solid job will be able to get blocks. 1.1 per contest this season, but 5 in the last three games as well, so he's been able to come alive. And then Jameer Nelson Jr. has been terrific out there in the backcourt. 14 points, 5 boards, shoots 37% from 3-point range. Carr also shoots 39% from 3-point range. It's a Delaware team that they rank outside the top 200 with regards to possessions per game, and if you're looking at a team that's playing very slow, how about our good friends Villanova? This is a team that, with regards to total possessions per game, they rank in the bottom 30 in all of college basketball. With that said, this is a Villanova team that, with regards to points scored on a per-possession basis, number 17 in all of college basketball, but 14 points per 100 possessions, fewer in a road and neutral court environment, so that is a little bit of a worry that you have with them, and this is a Villanova team that they do rank outside the top 50 with regards to points allowed on a per-possession basis. Defense does tend to be a little bit leaky. This is a Delaware team, though, that they do allow opponents to shoot right around 35% from three-point range, including in a road and neutral card environment, more around 36.5% from distance, so they're a little bit leaky with that regard. Eric Dixon, I think, is going to be able to do a solid job down low for this Villanova team, a guy that's able to shoot well over 40% from three-point range, gives you six boards per contest, so as they would do a solid job there. This is a Villanova team that, interestingly enough, may be able to do a solid job being able to shoot the three at home, but on the road, it is a bunch of which they do a little bit of a lesser job of it as they're shooting at home 41.5% from three, more like 33% on the road. I do think that that is something that you really do want to be taking a look at with regards to this Villanova team. Now, Villanova is a team that they've also got a fifth-year point guard in Colin Gillespie, a guy that doesn't turn the ball over much. Villanova with regards to turnovers on a per-possession basis. Top 25 team in all of college basketball. Number one team in all of college basketball, Villanova is with regards to free-throw shooting percentage at right around 82.5%. Delaware, they shoot more in the mid-70s at the free-throw line. Villanova, they do a good job of being able to lock you up from three-point range. They allow opponents in a road and neutral court environment to shoot 29.6% from three-point range. That's in the top 20 in all of college basketball. So I do think that Villanova is going to be able to do a solid job. I think that this is going to be a relatively slow game. Set this total out of 130.5. I'm diving under with Villanova. I think they get the job done. I think that this is just a little bit too lofty here. Set my line at 13.5. So taking the points and the under. 775, 776 on the banking board. Alabama and Notre Dame do battle. Alabama is a four-point favorite. Your total on this game is 152. And with this spot, I did wind up saying Notre Dame as a five-and-a-half-point underdog. So I do not see a team from the first four being able to make it to the round of 32 this season with Alabama. As we know, this is a team that's all over the place. But in a road and neutral court environment, Alabama shoots in the mid-30s from three-point range. And at home, it's 28%. I have no idea how that works. But it does. This is a Notre Dame team that they're outside the top 150 with regards to points allowed on a per-possession basis. So that's really bad. You've got an Alabama team that, with regards to opponents' three-point shooting percentage, they're in the middle of the pack. They allow opponents to shoot 33% from three, including 35% on a road and neutral court environment. Notre Dame, they're a team that they give up the arc a little bit as well. This is a bunch of which they rank right around 90th with regards to opponents' three-point shooting percentage, but at home, 26% on the road, 37.5%. That is a big, giant delta right there. You got a Notre Dame team that has been able to do a very solid job of being able to generate buckets. We've seen this all season long. They're a team that's in the top 50 with regards to points scored on a per-possession basis, and Alabama's in the top 30 with that regard. Blake Wesley is able to give you 14 points. He chips in there right in the neighborhood of three and a half boards, two and a half assists per game. Notre Dame, they shoot 38% for three, 76% the free line. Really don't turn the ball over a lot. Ten and a half times per contest. Notre Dame doesn't necessarily generate a lot of seals either, though. And this is an Alabama team that they do get loose with it. 14 and a half turnovers per contest. Relatively unacceptable. Jane Shackelford, Javon Quinterly, they combine for 31 points per contest. You've got a team that does a good job of being a rebound by committee. Keon Ellis, Jaden Shackelford, along with J.D. Davison. These three guys have been able to combine for right around 17 rebounds per contest. Charles Padeco down low has been able to give you a block and a half per game. So I do like what he's been able to bring to the table. It is an Alabama team that does 
of Keon Ellis being able to give you two steals per game. They've been able to get a little bit more recently down low out of James Ross as well. Wound up missing the first part of the season. Has been able to come on late, but able to give this team about a steal per contest. A guy that has been able to give you at least seven points in three out of the last five games. So he gives this team a little bit of added depth. So I do think that that's going to be beneficial to Alabama. You do have Nate Lashevsky down low for this Notre Dame team, coupled with Paul Atkinson. And Atkinson really had his best game of the season against Rutgers, right around 13 points, seven boards per contest. Lashevsky does shoot 46% for three. Good guy with size. But if you've got a question how tired Notre Dame is going to be for this game because they wind up having to fly out after that double overtime game in Dayton. Now they have to play in San Diego, California. That is going to be a very tough road to hoe, in my opinion, for the Notre Dame team. I think that that takes a little bit of something out of you. I did wind up saying this total at a 149.5 Notre Dame, a team that's in the bottom 35 with regards to possessions per game. Alabama in the top 35, so I think that you wind up getting something in the middle. I think that Notre Dame is going to have some tired legs in this spot. So, set Alabama 5.5 point favorite, won't delay. Semi total 149.5, so dive in under 777, 778 on the bang board. Texas Tech and Montana State are going to be doing battle, and this is a decay nation pick. Guys, you got Montana State anywhere between a 14.5 and a 15 point underdog in your tallest game. And between 131.5 and 132.5. DK Nation pick is going to be Montana State. I'm going to be taking a look at the points with Texas Tech. It's an offense that's scoring 24 points per 100 possessions. Fewer in a road and neutral court environment than at home. Now, with Texas Tech, number one team with regards to points allowed on a per possession basis, one away from home. So, they're doing an absolutely tremendous job there, and I do like what you're able to get out of Bryson Williams as well. Williams is a guy that shoots right around 43-44% from three-point range. A guy that stands in the neighborhood about six foot eight, so he's been terrific with his 14 points per contest, but take a look at Montana State, and this is a team that they're able to bomb it from three-point range. They're able to shoot about 37% from three, 75.5% at the free line. Xavier Bishop has done a good job of running an efficient point guard spot for this team, being able to give you 14 points, 4.3 assists per contest. Now, not a team that's necessarily going to generate a lot of seals. You've got a Texas Tech team that they do generate right around eight seals per contest, so that is something that you need to be on guard with with Montana State, but Montana State won the best road three-point shooting percentage teams in all of college basketball. They shoot 32.2% from three-point range at home, 39.5% from three-point range when they are away from home. That is good for number five in all of college basketball behind Santa Clara, Davidson, Jacksonville State, and South Dakota State. So they've been able to do a tremendous job with that regard. Abdul Muhammad is able to give you six half boards. He shoots 44% from three-point range. Brian Bell is able to give you seven boards. And this is the Texas Tech team that they're not necessarily super stout down low. They're a team that they do an okay job on the glass, but it's more by committee. Kevin McCullough, Kevin O'Banner both give you right around 10 points, five rebounds per game. McCullough just makes winning plays. Three assists, steal and half per contest. Doesn't shoot it great from three-point range, but finds a way to contribute. Darren Shanner, Davey, and Warren, both of these guys give you right around 10 points per game. Shannon's able to shoot about 37.5% from three-point range, but I do take a look at this spot, I think that Montana State is getting short shrift. They're a team that they're used to inclement travel, being out there in the big sky. They're a team that they want to take in Colorado to overtime in order to begin the season on the road. So they're a team that they've been in some dogfights with some relatively solid teams, and I think that they're going to be able to do a solid job of being able to hold in this game. My DK Nation pick is Montana catching the points. I did wind up saying this total 135. This is a Montana State team that I think is going to be able to vary enough threes to be able to hold in this game. Montana State is a team that they like to play a little bit more up-tempo. Texas Tech, more even mid-tempo team. So, I'm looking at the over and the DK Nation pick, Montana State. 779, 780 on the bang board. Arizona and Wright State are going to be doing battle. Wright State hopes to be the right side as they find themselves a 21.5 point underdog in your turnout scheme. In between 156.5 and 157.5, I said Arizona is a 23.5 point favorite. I like Arizona in the spot despite the fact that Kirk Kreese is not going to be in the fold. I think that they're going to just dominate Wright State from within. This is a Wright State team 
that they're outside the top 200 with regards to points a lot on a per possession basis. And while Arizona is a team that they like to bump up the tempo, they're a team that they like to be able to put up a bunch of points. They're also a top 25 team with regards to points allowed on a per possession basis. So they really do it on both sides. And a big reason why is what you've been able to get out of Christian Coloco, who's able to go a local down low for this team. A gentleman that has been able to give you right around two and a half blocks per contest. Does a great job giving you seven rebounds right in the neighborhood about 12 points per contest. So I do like what he's able to bring to the table for this team. And even without having Kirk Reese out there, Dallin Terry is a guy that is able to flow some offense as well. Doesn't necessarily score a lot, but seven and a half points, five rebounds, four assists. Doesn't turn the ball over a lot as well. Arizona is a team that they're solid from three-point range, but they're not necessarily scorched earth from three-point range. They shoot right around 35.5% from three-point range. So they've been very steady with that regard. They're going to be going up against the right state team that they've been able to do a much better job from three-point range compared to what you're seeing overall for the season. Overall for the season, they shoot right around 33.5% from three-point range. The last three games, though, they've shot 46% from three. You take a look at them over, I would say, the last calendar month. They've been able to shoot more in the pocket, about 38-39% from three-point range. So they're a little bit better with that regard. This is a team that I think is going to have a little bit of a tough time on the glass. So Grant Basil has been able to give you right around eight and a half rebounds per game to the last rock solid. But you take a look at this right state team as a whole. They rank right around 120th with regards to rebound rate. This is an Arizona team that they rank in the top 10 with that regard because you do have Zulus Sobalos who's able to give you 14.5 points, 6.5 boards. Also chips in there 2.5 assists per contest as well. Umar Balo has really been able to become a little bit more of a guy down low for the team as well. And then with Wright State, you do have a guy Tanner Holden who's holding it down. He's able to give you 20 points, 7.5 boards, 2.5 assists. She's 35% for 3-point range, but that said, I think that Wright State just going to get completely outgunned in this spot. Their defense I think is really going to falter even on this one streak. They've given up at least 67 points in each other last three contests, and this is an Arizona team that they are just absolutely running roughshod with their offense. They have scored at least 80 points in every one of their games in the month of March. It has been really impressive to see from them. Really, the only game that they have scored fewer than 80 points in, dating all the way back to Valentine's Day, is when they wound up taking that loss to Colorado. So I do think that Arizona going to be able to get their points. I did wind up setting this total at a 157.5. So I'm going to be siding with the over, and I'm willing to lay Arizona with the points in this spot, setting them as a 23.5 point favorite. And we wrap things up with 781-782 on the banging board. Seton all and TCU do battle. TCUs find themselves a one-point underdog to a pick'em, and your turn on this game is anywhere team 128.5 and 129.5. It's a TCU team that they do rank in the top 10 with regards to rebound rate, but that said, this is still a Seton all team that, in their own right, they're team that's relatively solid on the glass, and they've got Iko Biagu, who's able to give you a little bit over three blocks per contest. I think that he's going to be able to do a solid job for the Seton Hall team. You take a look at Seton Hall, and got a lot of good Swiss Army Knife guys. Someone like a Kadari Richmond, who's been able to do a solid job, being able to give you right around nine points per contest. He also does a nice job being able to give you right around three and a half, four assists per game. Shoots in the mid-30s from three-point range with TCU. This is one of the worst three-point training teams they're going to find in the field. They're a team that they've got one guy that averages more than five points per contest that shoots above 32% from three-point range, so that's a big-time issue when it comes to just sheer points scored on a per-possession basis. TCU 195th in all of college basketball. Seton Hall has been able to do a little bit better. They can get a little bit stagnant on offense, but with regards to this metric, they're a team that they rank more in the neighborhood, about 140th, and when it comes to just the overall opponent's three-point shooting percent, just as a TCU team that they do a okay job of being able to guard the arc, they're right around 70th with regards to opponent's three-point shooting percentage. This is a Seton Hall team that they do a good job of being 
double the swarm though they rank in the top 45 more so in this regard and when it comes to what you're able to get out of Alexis Yetna I think that he's going to be able to do a solid job down low seven rebounds per game and the TCU I mentioned how good they are with regards to their rebound rate you really don't have a single guy that gives you more than six and a half rebounds per game that'd be Emmanuel Miller he's able to give you ten and a half points 6.3 rebounds per game Eddie Lampkin has been able to give you six boards per contest as well but really you're going to be looking to Chuck O'Bannon for outside shooting nine points four boards shoots 33 percent from three Mike Miles he does a good job of being able to put up some points 15 points four assists per contest but TCU shoots just 30 and a half percent from three point range and at the free throw line they shoot 67 percent at the charity stripe that is going to be a big giant issue for them this is a seen all team that they do a relatively solid job at the free throw line it's not like they're in the top five or anything in all of college basketball but with that said you're able to feel relatively sure-handed about them in a close game it's a seen all team that they shoot 75 and a half percent at the free throw line overall and in a road and neutral court environment they shoot 77.3 percent in the free throw line that is a top 30 team in all of college basketball with that regard meanwhile with TCU they're a team that with regards to their free throw shooting percentage they do shoot a tad bit better on the road but 67.4 percent compared to more like 66.3 percent at home so that's a big giant issue I think that Seton Hall should be able to get the job done set them as a four-point favorite made my total in this game 132 as well I do think that it's going to be a little bit more of a grimy game but Seton Hall is a mid-tempo team and TCU not necessarily a team that plays super slow as well so looking at the over and looking at Seton Hall and that wrap things up for the Friday edition of Coast to Coast Hoops now part of the VEASAN family podcast a big thanks to Eli Becker of ECHXCBB for joining me in the last segment if you like for cheering from this fine podcast Coast to Coast Hoops you're able to subscribe wherever your podcast Apple Podcasts Google Play Spotify Stitcher and TuneIn if you've got a question comment segment idea what have you for this podcast you got one or two ways we offer those in first one is my Twitter timeline at Jaren's 41 keep in mind letters EM it does not matter so as per usual please just send these into the timeline and the other way is find an Apple Podcast review if you're at this podcast five stars it is very much appreciated and then from there you're able to find whatever you'd like to hear on this podcast via that five star review coming at you guys every single day throughout the college basketball season and that means I'm coming at you once again tomorrow thank you so much for tuning in